I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of John, the 12th chapter. We're going to start at the verse, the 12th verse. So John 12, verse number 12. And as you turn there, I've got a question for you. What kind of church exactly is it that we long to be? How do we say it? I think we're have it, we're going to have it up on the big screen, and it's on the front of your bulletin every week. Now, why don't you read that with me? Becoming a church molded by God's word and motivated by God's glory as we make disciples throughout God's world. And we do that in large part by being men and women and young people who read this book, believe this book, and live this book out. And um, I'm going to ask you to stand with me. As I open in prayer, and then we will read this passage. Father God, we're grateful for, for Sundays as, as the worship team were, was singing. They were ministering to our hearts, many of us at least, that you're glad we're here, that you've invited us to come as we are, and that's a great invitation. But God, we're also grateful that that you love us so much, you don't want to leave us in this place, but you're going to work with us and in us and through us to get us from where we're at right now this morning, a little bit closer to where you want us to be. So use your word, Lord. If we need conviction, bring conviction. If we need encouragement, bring encouragement. If we need comfort, bring comfort. We just pray that all in all, you Get the praise and honor and glory your due. Amen. So John chapter 12, starting at verse 12. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. 
If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Amen. You can be seated. It's kind of interesting in this uh, section of scripture, up until today, this is kind of a turning point, up until today, Jesus had always been saying, my hour had not yet come. But here he makes this announcement for everybody to hear. And that's a little bit about what we're going to talk concerning this morning. As you see, if you look at the outline that's in your bulletin, we've divided this morning's message into four distinct parts. And and we're going to work our way through each of those parts between now and the end of the service. And, And the first section is simply this. The King's Welcoming Committee, they had great expectations. Verse 12 says, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And if you fast forward to verse 1 of chapter 13, you'll see that they were coming, this feast was for the Passover. It's pretty much like the biggest festival most any of us have ever been a part of times 10. Historians believe that this large crowd mentioned here in verse 12 may have swollen Jerusalem from its regular population of about 100,000 people to more than a million. You know, think about that in terms of Iowa Falls. That would be like uh, this summer's 4th of July festival if we would have over 50,000 people show up in town a week before the event began and they need places to stay and food to eat and things to do. When Passover came, oh, by the way, just a question. If we had 50,000 people showing up for 4th of July, how many of you would uh, leave town for the week? Yeah, yeah, a few of you would, right? But when Passover came, pretty much everyone who had traveled to Jerusalem or lived there year-round, they wanted to be there. In fact, they planned ahead and saved and arranged their schedules to make it happen. They looked forward to coming to Jerusalem with like-minded men and women to celebrate how God had delivered his people from bondage in Egypt. So they looked forward to this. But we see in the following verses there was something different about this year. There was uh, an unusual sort of excitement in the air. And that's because these religious pilgrims had been told, end of verse number 12, Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so this this huge throng of people sought to give Jesus a welcome fit for a king. Uh, The first half of verse 13 says they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him. And the other gospels tell us that in addition to waving these palm branches, most of the people in the crowds also spread their cloaks on the road. If you can, I want you to try to picture this in your mind. Literally thousands upon thousands of people carpeting the road into Jerusalem with their outer garments. We talked about this at Elder Prayer a little bit before the service. I'm pretty sure none of the pilgrims had thought ahead to think about including their name or sewing their name into their cloak, right? And, And there wasn't any laundromat, I don't think anyway, in Jerusalem, but these people didn't care. They were literally taking the coats off their back and covering the road for Jesus. Second half of verse 13 says they were crying out. And what did they cry out? They cried out, Hosanna. 
Hosanna, which literally means God save us now. Give salvation now. Save us, please. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So all these people, thousands of people welcoming Jesus, making much of their coming king, they were filled with great expectations. Most of the words of this chorus are actually from Psalm 118, a psalm that was sung at most of these great feasts. And it's my belief that when they were crying out this refrain, the men and uh, women and young people who were lifting up these praises were at least sometimes singing in unison. No instruments, no big director. They were just lifting up their voices together. You know, sometimes on Sunday mornings when, when we're gathered here, the worship team won't play for a line or two or maybe a whole chorus of the song, and it's just our voices together. That's a pretty awesome feeling, isn't it? Um, earlier, well, early last week, Pastor Jeremy and I and, and my wife Chris went down to the district conference of the Evangelical Free Church. It's held every March down in West Des Moines, and and one of the things that I enjoy about it, not just the special teaching and the opportunities for fellowship, I think it's pretty cool when you have about 200 men gathered together, lifting their voices in praise to God. And, and that's probably sort of what these people were experiencing as they welcome Jesus into their city. Hosanna! Hosanna! Hosanna, they cried out. In their heart of hearts, they were hoping, they had this great expectation that Jesus was the Messiah God had sent to save his people by freeing them from their bondage to Rome and reestablishing the kingdom. <laughs> Not realizing that Jesus had come to rescue them from a much greater danger, the bondage and weight and penalty of their sin. It's interesting for those of us who know the rest of the story that over the coming week, most everyone who was heralding Jesus on this day would one by one discover the sinless Son of God was not the kind of king they were expecting. And as hard as it is for us to imagine that, by the end of the week, some of those in this crowd may even have been willing to join their voices in a much different chorus this time calling on Pilate to crucify this very same man who they would later mock as king of the Jews. Although the Palm Sunday crowd couldn't understand that Jesus came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, I have to admit I, I still kind of admire their joy-filled zeal. They, again, had great expectations for their feast. There was no way these people were going to miss being in Jerusalem. They gladly rearranged their schedules so they could be there. And when opportunity came for them to join with others in lifting up these songs of praise, they did with glad and happy and hope-filled hearts. And, and, beloved, I want to ask you a question. Should our worship of the Savior of the world, of the one who loves us and gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins, should our worship be filled with any less delight than shown by the ones who are welcoming 
Jesus on this particular day. Mm. Now that's part of what we're going to be praying about when we gather in a couple weeks, is that God would fill us with that kind of expectation, that kind of hope, that kind of joy. I wonder if I, if I had a, a thermometer that I could somehow do it, if I could measure the spiritual temperature of this room, what would the thermometer say? Or, or on a more personal level, if you could take your own temperature this morning, your spiritual temperature, what would the thermometer say? And, and friends, if you're not happy with the answer that you give, Perhaps you need to ask the Lord to do something about it. How, how can I be more prepared for Sunday morning? How can I have that same kind of joyful expectation that the people had at that Passover? I'm going to give you a couple possible things you can do. And, and the first is this. Make sure your heart is right with the Lord. Jesus says that the Father desires worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. God wants our, our hearts to be right with him and with others. And, and if it's not, what am I supposed to do about it? If, if my heart's not right with God, if, if there's some sin in my life that I've been holding on to, reluctant to give up, and it's getting in the way, and it will get in the way of my relationship with the Lord, what am I supposed to do? That R word. I'm supposed to repent. I'm supposed to turn away from that sin and run to the cross. I'm going to get my focus on the one who paid the penalty for that sin. And I need to ask God to help me grow in my love and appreciation and admiration of him. That, as Pastor Jeremy said, I'm not just worshiping for an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday morning, but my life is a life of worship. That's one of the things that we can do. And, and the second thing, this has meant a little bit more to me since I became a pastor. But do you know how, how the Jewish people celebrate the Sabbath? They consider that not just a holy day, but a holiday, a spiritual holiday. They actually begin celebrating their Sabbath at sunset the night before. So for us as followers of Jesus Christ, what would our worship look like, our preparation for worship look like if on Saturday night, instead of filling it with all sorts of other activity and, and busyness, if we began preparing our hearts to meet with Jesus. More, of course, we can each do, but we can start there. You know, I, I love being a church filled with great expectations, and, and God wants us to be a part of that church. Okay, as we get to the second part of this message, we see that our Jesus was always and only about his Father's business. Always and only about his Father's business. If you're familiar with the Gospels, if you've read through them, you know up until this day, Jesus had neither welcomed nor sought out the adulation of the crowds. In fact, earlier in the same gospel, on the day that Jesus fed the 5,000, the people in the crowd were pretty excited. Now, what did they want to do? Jesus could tell they wanted to come and take him by force to make him their king. And so what did he do? He simply withdrew from them. He got out of that situation. 
his hour had not yet come. But on this day, when he entered the holy city, the only begotten Son of God didn't turn away from or try to stop the crowds that were heralding him as their coming king. Now, based on what we read in these verses, Jesus not only welcomed their acclamation, he willingly participated in their celebration. In fact, verse 14 says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And I want you to understand, it wasn't that Jesus was tired or unable or unwilling to walk. By receiving this hero's welcome into the city, Jesus was making sure that those who were seeking his death, the religious leaders of the nation, knew that he was there. And by riding into Jerusalem on that donkey, Jesus was also providing irrefutable evidence that he was always and only about his father's business. You may be wondering, well, how are you going to make that connection? Well, God the Son was fulfilling a prophecy that had been made about him, the Messiah, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit through his prophet Zechariah about 550 years earlier. Okay? About 550 years earlier. I was thinking about putting that in context for us today. When did Columbus discover America? 1492. So that's about 500 and 30 years ago. So add 20 years. It's, it's as though a prophet, 550 years ago, 20 years before Columbus discovered America, determined, knew, revealed who would be elected president of the United States in the year 2020. Okay? So putting it a little bit of context. And what was this prophecy? Well, verse 15 tells us, Fear not, daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. By fulfilling this prophecy, Jesus, by finding this colt and sitting on it, he was announcing himself as Israel's long-awaited king. However, no one there that day understood what he was doing. In fact, John, when he wrote this gospel years later, verse 16 says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and been done to him. So why do you think John was inspired by the Holy Spirit to include this little bit of commentary in verse 16? In large part, it's because God wants you and I to have confidence in this book, all of it, Old Testament and New. Uh, Bible scholars studying the Old Testament have discovered there are over 300 distinct specific prophecies concerning Jesus Christ that are made in the first 39 books of the Bible. In addition to the one I just shared, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to list seven others. That he would be born in Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah. That the coming Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. His hand and feet would be pierced 
his clothes would be gambled away. Psalm 34.20 says, Not a bone in his body would be broken. Isaiah 53, verse 9, he would be buried in a rich man's grave. So I have told you a grand total of eight of the 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled at his first coming. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but mathematicians using the laws of probability have determined the odds of one person being able to fulfill even eight of these specific prophecies found in the Old Testament would be one in 100 trillion. That's a big number. One in 100 trillion. Now, to give you an idea how big 100 trillion is, I'm going to share a little bit of geography with you. Texas is our second largest state, right? And Texas is big enough, if you could partition the acres of Iowa and send them to Texas, that state is big enough to hold five states of Iowa, okay? So it's huge. It's huge. Now, what am I holding here in my fingers? A silver dollar, and they didn't make it like this anymore. This one's 1971. It's a big silver dollar. And I just thought about flipping it and everything, but then it might get missed and make a little bit of noise on the floor. Okay, back to my illustration. One in a hundred trillion. Texas again. If, if you drive from one end of Texas, from the south to the north or the east to the west, you pick the furthest spot, it's going to take you at least 10 hours to drive that far. Probably a few hours longer, okay? Again, it's a big, big state. Now, let's say we got a big collection of 100 trillion of these silver dollars and we poured them out on the state of Texas. Every acre of every square mile in the state of Texas, we poured out these silver dollars. To get to 100 trillion, you would have to pour until the level of silver dollars in the state of Texas is two feet deep. A little more than my, higher than my knee, okay? And, and then, for our law of probability, if we mark my special silver dollar and hide it somewhere in the state and stir up all the silver dollars for as long as it took, and then we ask for one volunteer, and blindfolded that volunteer, and ask that volunteer to start wandering around in the state of Texas till you found that spot where you think that silver dollar might be, eyes closed, you dig down into those coins as far as you think and grab that coin and pull it out. That would be as likely as it could be for one man to fulfill all these prophecies. So, so why does the... Word of God contain these specific references to fulfilled prophecies from the Old Testament. Why? Because God wants us to know that we can have complete confidence in his word. That he has sovereignly, he, the, uh, the word history, you take that into two parts, two words, what are they? His story. The God of all creation, his unfolding plan of redemption is working its way, not just to the cross, but to the day when Jesus comes again for his church. And he wants us 
to realize and believe that all Scripture is God-breathed. And that's why, like Jesus, you and I should always be found, always and only, about our Father's business. Okay, continue on. Third part of the message. Third part of the message. We're going to see that many of those who had witnessed Christ's power over death couldn't help but tell others. I love this. The people who, who saw, who knew the power of Jesus couldn't help but tell others. If you glance back to chapter 11, you're going to see that only a short time before this, Jesus had raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. An amazing four days after his body had been laid in his tomb. And Jesus, when he performed this miracle, didn't do it in secret. There, there was a group of mourners who were there as witnesses. These were friends and family of Lazarus and his sisters. And then at the beginning of chapter 12, on the day before the one we're reading about this morning, a very special dinner was held in honor of Jesus, during which Mary, the sister of Lazarus, anointed our Savior's feet and head with a pound of very expensive and fragrant perfume. And the storyline now continues in verse 17 of chapter 12 where we read these words. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And just what were these witnesses telling the worshipers who had come to celebrate the Passover? What was their story? You know, we could boil it down to this simple of an explanation. Lazarus was dead. He was buried. He laid in that tomb for four days. And, you know, any of you could probably finish that story, right? We're, we're aware. We're comfortable with it. And, and it shouldn't be the case, but sometimes you and I can get so used to the miracles that Jesus has accomplished that we... We simply read them as matter of fact. And we don't come close to being filled with the same kind of awe, the same kind of wonder as those who witness firsthand the resurrection of Lazarus or who heard about it that day in Jerusalem. Um, years ago, I was involved in a, in a jail ministry and I... At first, I was really scared when I did it. I mean, they gave me a man-down button, and I asked, what's this for? And they said, in case something bad happens, you got to push that button. I said, me? Something bad can happen to me? Which it never did, but I had to wear that button. Anyway, our church was really interested in seeing these men who were incarcerated at the Steele County Detention Center have an opportunity to hear the gospel and to respond to the gospel and get discipled and growing their faith. And, and so I would go, usually once a week, and I would have two, three, four, five, ten people who would come to the Bible study. And, and interestingly, pretty much everybody who, who wanted to talk to the pastor had some expectations. I'm not saying they were great, but they had some expectations. Because a lot of the guys that I met with, I talked to, uh, they didn't have any trouble admitting they were guilty. They had done, in some cases, some incredibly wicked things, 
And they were wondering if there was any such thing as hope for someone who had so violently or wickedly hurt another human being. Anyway, our, our church made purchases of a bunch of paperback New Testaments and also some Gospel of John's. And, and uh, I remember one day uh, a young man named Rich was in our Bible study. I can't remember if I gave him an actual New Testament or a little uh, Gospel of John, which is about the size of our, our daily bread. But anyway, I, I gave it to Rich, and, and I made the same offer I made to any of the men who came to the Bible study. I said, if you read the Gospel of John, our church will give you your very own Bible. And uh, some of the guys, that was really intriguing, and they would read through John, and it would take them a week or two or three weeks, but they would get through it. Well, anyway, the next week I came back, and, and I asked Rich, I said, well, did you read the Gospel of John? And he just had this look of delight in his eyes, and, and he had excitement in his voice. And I said, well, what, what was the highlight of it? What, what did you get out of it? And I was so flattered. Because you can tell this guy didn't grow up in Sunday school. He said, the story of Lazarus. All right? I said to myself, well, I know he read it. He didn't know how to pronounce it, but he had read it. And, and Rich wasn't so familiar with the story. He hadn't heard it as many times as you and I had. So when he heard it and when he believed it, wow, he was just filled with wonder, with appreciation. Uh, Rich, by the way, he came to give his life to Jesus Christ. And, and uh, one of the following Sundays, I did a weekday study, and on Sunday, different pastors would come into the jail to do a worship service. And uh, one of the biggest blessings I've had as a pastor uh, was the following Monday or Tuesday after one of those Sundays uh, because um, I, had a, I had a man from a pastor of a, of a local Lutheran church come into my office. He wanted to talk to me. And uh, he needed to tell me what had happened when he was at the jail. And uh, he said, in my church, I just, I've got a church full of people who believe they've always been Christians from the, from the day they were baptized, and it's just normal and everything else to him. And he says, I met a guy at the jail named Rich. And Rich, well, Rich, let me tell you, he's, he's a brand-new Christian. He's just so excited about what God has done for him. And uh, this Lutheran pastor said, Rich asked me when I was there to baptize him. And uh, he said, I've never had a guy in his 20s ask me to baptize him. <laughs> and, and again, he was just so filled with excitement and delight. And this pastor with this new confidence and joy that God truly is able to change hearts, even of those you and I think or may choose to believe can't be changed. Uh, just the way God works in his timing. I'm in a, the life class. It's Leadership Iowa Falls Experience. Every other Thursday, I go around with eight or so other people in the community, get acquainted with what's going on in uh, Iowa Falls in our county. And, and this last week, I visited the county jail in Eldora. Anybody else been there? It's a very nice facility. And and from what I could see and what I've heard, they're having some good results there. But i got to say something. Uh, I, I shared this with Chris. I, my spirit is just greatly troubled 
all the time I was in that jail, not just when I was in that jail, but even after I went home later on. And, and I think it was that there was just a very great and heavy spiritual darkness in that place. Uh, the, the jailer said at, at that point on that day they had 88 inmates, uh, men and women, only eight of whom are from Hardin County. And he said to us on our tour, most of those 88 people will never receive a visit even one visit during their entire incarceration. And, and then they shared something that was even more troubling and, and it's something that Mike alluded to a little bit earlier. Um, many of the people, especially the ones from Hardin County who are in that jail are the sons of fathers who were in that jail a generation ago. And, and I'll tell you, church, that's one of the reasons why I'm excited about this ministry that's taking place in Eldora is because they are helping young people who are ensnared in this generational sin, right, following in the steps of their fathers. Hear good news, an opportunity to believe good news and respond in faith to that good news. Some of the people that are in that jail, they said uh, to us, their life is nothing more than an endless cycle of jail or even prison interrupted by brief periods of freedom. And you and I know that the glory of the gospel, the hope of the gospel, the light of the gospel shines brightly, most brightly, in the midst of spiritual darkness. And I'm going to remind you of something I'm also reminding myself of. When Jesus suffered and died for the sins of the world, it was not his intention that any of his blood should go to waste. If you believe that, say amen. No, Luke's gospel tells us Jesus came in part to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind. And a great timing for us is if you want to help make that possible for some of these kids in Eldora, that they'd come to know the truth and that the truth would set them free. You've got an opportunity to join with Mike and Chad and Rachel. Talk to them after the service. Hmm. Anyway, back to our passage. These witnesses in verse 17 were obviously very glad to tell others about Jesus. They couldn't, however, control the response that people would have to their message as over and over again, they testified both to the power and the compassion of Christ. And in these verses, we see that on that day, their message stirred at least three different reactions, the first of which was hope in the hearts of many. They, they were waiting for and hoping and longing for a king who would change their nation's political misfortunes. They didn't understand exactly who Jesus was and what he was about to do, but again, their hearts were kindled with hope. Verse 19 shows us their message stirred hostility in the hearts of some. The Pharisees who had already agreed that Jesus must die for the nation are found saying to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. And why are these men hostile again? As Pastor Jeremy taught us a few weeks back, these religious leaders feared the popularity of Jesus 
Jesus would cause them to lose both their place and their nation. And so they actually wanted him dead. That's hostile. And finally, this very same message about the power and compassion of Jesus stirred something else, a spiritual longing or hunger in the hearts of a few. Verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And the word Greeks in this context is synonymous with Gentiles, which included anyone living in the known world at that time who wasn't Jewish. And these Gentiles were generally looked down upon by faithful, observant Jews. They were known to be excluded from the covenants of Israel, and as Ephesians chapter 2 puts it, having no hope and without God in the world, which, by the way, is exactly where every one of us either was or perhaps still are. Verse 21, so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. And, and as a curious guy, I have to admit, I've been wondering exactly why these Gentiles sought out this man. And then another question I had was, why were these Gentiles, of all the hundreds of thousands who'd come to Jerusalem, why are these the only ones asking for a personal audience with Jesus? Why? Why do lost people who are hungry for God ever seek out someone who is already following Jesus? There's a two-part answer to that question. The first is that God is drawing them to himself. God is, is drawing them to him. In John 6 and 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. So the Holy, Holy Spirit was drawing these men to Jesus, but again, why do they involve Philip? You know, perhaps it was because he had a Greek-sounding name. That makes sense, but... I'm pretty sure none of the 12 were wearing name tags, right? And, and the next thing I asked myself, was it because he smelled different? And, and I'm not exactly joking, okay? Did, did he smell different, distinct than the other people in the crowd? And, and you might wonder, why would I say that? Well, remember what happened less than 24 hours before. Remember Mary and that box of perfume and, and breaking it and anointing the Savior's hair and his feet with that perfume. Verse 3 of the same chapter says, When she did it, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So maybe, you know, have you ever been to a restaurant and when you leave, your coat kind of smells like the food you were eating? You know, maybe. I know that's a long shot, but the Bible also says, Christian, you are supposed to smell different. You are. And if you spend time cultivating your relationship with and growing in your love for Jesus, you will. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15 says, Through us, God spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of his son everywhere. 
And then it says, you and I are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Wow. You're supposed to be unique and different. People can tell that you've been with Jesus. And and so let me say, if you've been on the receiving end of God's grace, if you've understood the gospel message, if you have humbly again turned from your sins and placed your faith in Jesus and the finished work of the cross, Jesus who died in your place for your sins and was buried and three days later rose from the dead, the Bible says you not only have been born again, you have been called and commissioned as an ambassador of the gospel. Do you need special training to do that? Oh, it might help. But did these men and women who saw Lazarus come forth from the dead, did they go to a special training class before they started telling people all that they had seen and experienced? No. But a working knowledge of this book helps a lot. You simply need to be willing to tell others what you have seen and heard and even personally experienced. And that's exactly what these witnesses of the resurrection of Lazarus were doing. Now thinking about being a witness for Jesus and talking about being a witness for Jesus, uh, they can make us feel good, but (laughs) we need God's help in turning our intentions into action. For God has, has called us and empowered us, men and women and young people in every generation, who have personally, again, experienced the life-transforming power of Jesus Christ to be as eager to bear witness as the friends and family of Lazarus. That's my alarm. I'm about done, I'm sure. (laughs) Okay, fourth part. Jesus reminds us that in God's economy, suffering precedes glory. I'm not going to spend as much time on this part of the passage, but I just couldn't skip it either because pastor is going to pick it up at the end of this section next Sunday. Jesus reminds us that in God's economy, suffering precedes glory. We don't know if Jesus ever met separately with these God-fearing Gentiles who went to Philip and, and Philip went to Andrew and the two of them came to our Savior. But in the next few verses, Jesus makes it clear that his mission was different than what most all these people who were greeting him that day had willed themselves to believe. They were looking forward to a Messiah who would bring Israel stature and, and regain its influence in the world. But Jesus made clear the way to glory isn't through political triumph or the fine-sounding praise of men. Jesus and the rest of Scripture makes clear death comes first and then glory. The glory of the cross is the glory of Christ. And in verse 24, Jesus indicates before he's enthroned as king, he's going to die. And then much fruit will be realized. Verse 25, Jesus speaks to you and me and everyone else in our generation who would have the hope of heaven saying, and this is our memory verse, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Talked about this in the membership class this morning. You know, living in a land of great freedom and and religious liberty, 
we can spiritualize what these words mean, but our brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing it firsthand. I remember two summers ago, uh, an article that caught my attention, a bus in Egypt was carrying a group of Christians. And as they were on their way to a worship service, that bus was stopped by 10 heavily armed Muslim terrorists. And those terrorists had one goal. They were intent on forcing these men and women and kids to renounce their faith in Jesus Christ that day on the spot and convert to Islam. Afterwards, uh, a couple of women who were about my age were interviewed. They survived that attack. Uh, One of these said she was traveling on the bus with her husband, two sons, both in their early 30s, two grandkids and other family members. And, And this lady said afterwards, my son was the very first to be martyred. Then they shot the driver of our bus, and then they killed my husband. Her four-year-old granddaughter and a nephew were also shot and killed. Another survivor, a woman about the same age, said that after the militants boarded the bus, they asked the survivors of the first round of gunfire to either recite the Islamic Shahada Creed and agree to live as practicing Muslims or be killed. Wow. Can you imagine yourself on that what it would have been like to hear this challenge, this threat, knowing what the consequences would certainly be. And and the cool thing for us now, in in this this verse I just read, is is as though those believers on that bus had just heard their pastor preach on John 12 and 25. Because this is their testimony. They said, We are Christians, and we will die Christians. (laughs) They they had made up their mind before they got on that bus who they belonged to and who they were living for. I love that profession. We are Christians, and we will die Christians. Can you say that? Can you say that? We are Christians, and we will die Christians. That very day, 29 believers did just that. They chose to love Jesus even more than life, and as a result, they died for their faith. The cool thing is what happened next. Revelation 2, verse 10 says that they were welcomed into heaven. And and each of these men and women and young people who died on account of their faithful witness for Jesus received the crown of life. Hallelujah, right? From the world's perspective, their decision wasn't prudent. But from eternity's perspective, it was a no-brainer. For whoever whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. As the worship team comes forward, we've got one more slide up on the the big screen. Uh, Can we go to the, the very last slide? Yeah. This is from uh, Jim Elliott. Jim says uh, he's one of the the missionaries who was martyred by the Alka Indians, you know, probably 67 years ago. Uh, Jim said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And Lord God, as we get ready to sing our closing song, uh, I think 
a lot of us need your help in understanding all that that means. That though this world sometimes seems out of control, your sovereign plan is working its way towards the day of our redemption when we will stand up and see our salvation arrive. And Lord, you want us until that day to live not just for ourselves, not just to encourage one another, but to be about this business of being a witness for you. Being like these men and women who are excited about Lazarus and his resurrection. And we even more can testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ who won for us through his death our own salvation. Help us to see Jesus. Yes, these opportunities are there, but unless we change and move from intention to action, there's going to be many who miss out on what you're wanting them to understand concerning this glorious gospel. Give us confidence as we live out our lives according to your word that we, like Jesus, would always and only be about his Father's business. We're grateful, Jesus, that you have helped us to see and understand, embrace the truth, and now we want to live it out in our lives that our each day of our lives would be marked by great expectation and this hope that's going to elicit a response from those you're drawing to yourself. That every one of us be ready, not just this day, but every day, to give an explanation for the reason for our hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.